Why do some megachurch pastors wear shoes that cost as much as a mortgage payment? Is that wrong or do some pastors deserve to be rich? Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's, and joining me today is Ben Kirby, creator of the hugely popular Instagram account, Preachers in Sneakers. And today you'll hear how what started as a simple post poking fun at the extravagant shoe choices of a worship pastor has turned into an entire phenomenon. Preachers and Sneakers now has hundreds of thousands of followers, and it's catapulted Ben Kirby to a bit of fame himself. Yet as you'll hear, Ben's passion is not only to expose the lavish lifestyles of some Christian celebrities, but also to urge all of us to evaluate the deeper questions like, should pastors grow wealthy off of religion, and why do we get so angry when they do? Does God really give monetary blessings for obedience, or is that just religious wallpaper to help pastors grow rich by stoking other people's greed? And why is it that Christians are making other Christians into celebrities? And what happens to the gospel when we do? These are incredibly relevant and important discussions to have, especially given all of the scandals and crises that we're experiencing in the church. And I'm so looking forward to my time with Ben discussing these issues. But before I do, I want to take a minute to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Judson University and Marquardt of Barrington. Judson is a top-ranked Christian university providing a caring community and an excellent college experience. Plus, the school offers more than 60 majors, great leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid. Judson University is shaping lives that shape the world. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Also, if you're looking for a quality, new, or used car, I highly recommend my friends at Marcord of Barrington. Marcord is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marcord, are men of integrity, and I'm so proud to partner with them. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. That's buyacar123.com. Well, again, joining me today is Ben Kirby, the man behind the Preachers and Sneakers Instagram account. He's also the author of a new book by Thomas Nelson called Preachers and Sneakers, Authenticity in an Age of For-Profit Faith and Wannabe Celebrity. So, Ben, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Julie. This is fun. I appreciate the time. Yeah, well, I appreciate you joining me. And, you know, I absolutely love what you're doing with your Preachers and Sneakers account. And in a way... Ooh, good. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so much fun. And in a way, uh, we're in the same business, but you're doing it in a little more uh, lighthearted way with pictures. I'm doing it with sure. investigative journalism. But, right. I mean, my method has existed for a very long time. Your method is relatively new and very creative. And I'm just wondering about mm -hmm. how you got started on this whole Instagram account, Preachers and Sneakers. Sure. To preface everything, a lot of this fell into my lap. Some of There was some stroke of luck and timing and everything that went into this where I, I'm not some, I don't have a journalism background or an investigator background or anything. Some of this was kind of the perfect storm in a lot of ways. But two years ago, I happened to notice this worship leader wearing a pair of sneakers that were worth about $850 or so in the resale market. And that morning, I felt compelled for whatever reason to make a short video about it, just telling my personal Instagram followers, like I had, I think I might have had 350 people following me <laughs> and just saying, Hey, did you know this worship leader is wearing Yeezys that are worth 800 bucks? That, that makes me feel something. I don't know what that is. 
so that was on a YouTube video. And then YouTube basically on the side serves up other related videos. And I realized very quickly that, oh, there's all these pastors and worship leaders that were wearing shoes that were worth a mortgage payment or more. <laughs> and as a yeah. guy that kind of grew up in Louisiana and lives in Texas now, there's a very, I had a very Southern Christian upbringing. I had never considered how Christians do things on like in LA or New York City. Come to find out there's a whole culture of Christians that wouldn't bat an eye at somebody wearing a $500 belt or a $2,000 pair of shoes. So I made a few of those videos. A, a friend reached out to me saying, hey, you should just do an account just doing that. And so after a few days, I thought about it. I thought of the name. And eventually I copied those videos over and I started pulling, basically screenshotting pastors' own photos of their Instagrams and then juxtaposing the price of their sneakers right next to it. Mm -hmm. And just those two things kind of in tension with each other caused many people to lose their minds. Doing just that over four weeks, I gained 100,000 followers from zero. Wow. And was interviewing with the New York Times and the Washington Post and Wall Street Journal. And I couldn't believe it. I, I was in the middle of my Master of Business program all while having this viral moment happen. Two years later, somehow I'm still around and it just kind of ballooned into a much bigger discussion than preachers literally wearing sneakers. It turned into more of a discussion about the church's relationship to wealth and fame and self-help and image and social media and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's just interesting how things work out. Yeah, well, I want to get into some of these deeper issues that sur are surrounding. I mean, you're kind of having fun in a way, but the reason it's really gained traction, your account, is because there's deeper issues involved, like, oh, you know, yeah. with wealth and with celebrity and all that in the church. But there's kind of an interesting story about how you even knew about the sneaker culture, because I would see that picture and I'd see a pair of Nikes and I'd be like, yeah, it's a mm -hmm. pair of Nikes, you know, I, I would have had no idea that the shoes are worth 850 bucks. So, I mean, for a lot of people listening, I bet they're in my, there's a lot of people in, in my boat. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, my kids yeah, are, yeah, yeah. I, I asked my kids As you about, should be probably. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> I asked my kids about this and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. There's $5,000 shoes out there. And I'm like, who would do that? And they're like, it's status mom. Like it's, it's a thing. And yeah. I, I'm just like, it blows my mind, this whole thing. But tell about how you kind of became aware of the whole expensive sneaker market. And they're kind of like collectibles, sure. right? Yeah. I have a very non-standard background for doing what I do now. The reason I'm into sneakers at all is because I have a very good friend that's in the NBA. Before business school and before a couple of years in the corporate world, I was in the Marines. I was a logistics officer. In 2015, I was deployed to Eastern Europe and I was there for my birthday. And my buddy who's in the NBA let me go through the player-specific Nike store and let me basically pick out whatever I wanted. And I had, before, up to that point, I had never considered sneakers. I mean, most of them I can't even pull off. I'm a very average looking dude not athletic or anything, but he let me get all these sneakers and he gave and he basically shipped them to me in the States while I was on deployment. And I came home to all that very quickly got interested. It's kind of got an art feel to it. It's got a tech feel to it. It's got pop culture intertwined amongst all of it. And then there's also for me, the most interesting thing is kind of the entrepreneurial aspect of it is where you, you can really flip some of these sneakers for a profit just with your phone. Hmm. And at the time that seemed interesting to me because so it's like an it's investment. Kind of yeah, well, it's like a it's kind of a <laughs> microeconomics lesson where it's yeah. a lot of these a lot of these sneakers are in very limited quantities and there's outsized demand for the amount of which there is mm. supply. And so that inherently drives up the price in the resale market. And so yeah, kind of like beanie babies or Pokemon cards or any other type of 
collectible thing. Uh, there is an outsized market value for a thing that started at maybe $120 or $190. But because it's so hard to acquire some of these sneakers, or you have to wait in line for overnight or have to get really lucky on an online raffle, prices that people are willing to pay for those in order to wear them uh, it skyrockets. So much like you, many people before they saw my account had just always assumed that some of these preachers and pastors were just dressing to look hip. We're trying to look relevant. We're trying to not look like the stuffy suits and pews and all that. But once I said, hey, did you know that these are worth $1,200? People had to contend with that. Yeah. And it kind of frazzled people in the mind, which forced, you know, some ended up being really mean. Some were just shocked. Others were not surprised and encouraging and thought, you know, God had blessed these people with, with this kind of thing. Um, so it opened up quite the can of worms and not a uh, perfect answer one way or the other. Hmm. The reason I said investment is that I kind of jokingly, you know, said investment because so many of these pastors, when they get caught with, whether it's the vacation home worth $5 million or, you know, whatever it is, yeah. it's an investment. Oh, oh yeah, it's all right, an investment. Right. <laughs> so I'm sure these collectibles are not too. frivolous at all. No, 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 not at all. Although I do think that's the thing. I feel like this is kind of symbolic. It's kind of, I don't know if you remember the PTL scandal with Jim Baker back in the 80s. That I made, know who Jim Baker is. I know the stuff he's trying to hawk now. I, I, I wasn't around in the 80s. So. Yeah, yeah. But when that whole scandal blew, it was the heated doghouse that he had that people just blew up over. It was just somehow it was like. <laughs> yeah, that's the straw. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, that's so ridiculous. A heated doghouse. But the same thing, I think, with these sneakers. And yet, as you've been bringing these things to light, you're getting the same kind of heat. I mean, when I read this in your book, I just had to chuckle. You write, the world's most famous pastors and their followers messaged me to say I was divisive, that I was being a gossip, and that I ultimately would have to account for the soul's loss to hell, apparently, due to my posts. And I can't tell yeah. you how many times I've heard that about my articles, the same sort of thing. But yeah. these crazy allegations that if we expose, it's, it's not the problem of the, the people who are wearing the $1,000 or however many dollar sneakers or handbag or whatever it is, but it's our fault for that's right. exposing it, right? I mean, how yeah, do you that's respond been to that? That's been the most shocking thing. It's like I distinctly remember a woman telling me that about the accounting for the souls lost to hell because of my account. I'm okay with people being angry at me for posting pictures and price tags of sneakers. But if you're mad at me about that, how could you not also be mad about people making immense wealth off of preaching about Jesus? If you have the wherewithal to be mad at me for posting pictures about this kind of thing, how on earth are you good with people taking advantage of those that are trying to genuinely tithe out of sacrifice and commitment to further God's kingdom. It's just like the most backwards thing ever. You get exposed to everyone's personal expectations of what you should be on social media versus what they think their pastor should be. And so everybody's got a different line, a different idea about what's appropriate or not. But yeah, it's always been interesting to me that, that I'm the problem that I'm showing the pictures and the facts that the price tag is what it is versus the idea that they're wearing a pair of shoes that is worth a mortgage payment. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I have a friend who, who has been an investigative journalist for like over 20 years. Recently, he sent me a mug that actually had one of the <laughs> one of the comments on my site on an article calling me a, what was it, a divisive dingbat, and I think the B word or something like that. Oh. And he was like, he, he texted me that day, I remember, he, that, that it went up, and he was like, man, in 20 years, I never got hate mail that good. I am so jealous. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> that's, and, it to, and to us, it, that's got to be some kind of validation. Like, if I'm so easily able to cause people to 
erupt into hatred like that, yeah. then there has to be something deeper there. And then much like I follow you on Twitter and I, I see the responses that you get. And it's interesting that people will get more upset about maybe you exposing some things or being quote unquote divisive. Like Christians would much rather accuse people of being divisive than accuse someone of being a sexual abuser or a financial abuser. Like us being divisive is hardly the uh, tip of the iceberg, I would say. Hmm. Well, totally agree. And I sympathize with you because I know what it's like to be in the hot seat. You know, we've talked about some sort of some lighthearted things, but your book really sure. does get to some of these more deeper issues that I think are at the root of this and, and make us question these guys wearing this expensive clothing. And, and really the underlying question is, is it okay to get rich off of God? And you talk about this Harley moment that you had as a kid. So, you know, would you describe that and what your take is on this whole idea of getting rich off of doing ministry? Sure. The Harley moment is a story from 25 years ago when I was like six years old and our local pastor came to our house to show off his his new motorcycle. And in an exercise for writing the book, I wanted to think of the first moment I realized I had at least had a thought about the the distinction between living off people's donations or living off the money you, you earn yourself. Mm-hmm. And this story kind of got me into some heat because it come to find out the pastor had other sources of income, might have not even taken a, a salary. Uh, he's a family friend and everything. But the story still was valid to me where I, even I as a young kid at least had raised an eyebrow like, wait, I thought my parents were kind of donating to our church in order to run the operations. It seems like a big toy. I just have a question about that. I at least had the thought as even as a six or seven year old kid. You know, the fact that he got it from a different source than I mean, you assumed as a kid, well, we're giving our money. And is this what our donations are paying for this Harley? Right. But I think even when scripture talks about living above reproach and also the appearance of evil to not even have the appearance of evil. And Mm -hmm. I think that's valid. You know, I mean, if you're a minister of the gospel, don't we have to think about our, our lifestyle? Right. Yeah. Now that I'm fully into this and I've written the book and everything, that's one of the big themes for me is that a lot of us have never even considered what our clothing or our purchases or our posts communicate to others, even if it's an unfair message or a message that you didn't intend to send. I think there's wisdom in pausing and saying, hey, do I care about the optics of this? Now, granted, I'm in no position of authority to say it's never okay to own a motorcycle. And this person that I wrote about, I have a ton of respect for and love for and just use the story as the thing to point to to say, hey, this is the first time I had I raised an eyebrow about this. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't write the chapter to indict him or to say, hey, this was evil of you to do. But I used it as a thing to point to and say, hey, there are thousands of other people that have had that moment where you saw a thing and you didn't know how to put a finger on it, but it stirred something in you because it felt like a minister of the gospel or somebody who lives off donations should be living in a maybe more conservative way than it seemed that they were. Well, one thing with the Harleys, you know, at Harvest Bible Chapel, which I've done a lot of reporting on, James McDonald once rode his Harley into the church. And they were very open with the Harleys that they had given away to pastors. These were gifts. So, and they were bought with donations. There were, I know that there were seven Harleys given to pastors, not just in the church, but some to some high profile pastors outside the church. Harvest to this day has not told who received. I mean, I've gotten some of them 
that were actually pastors at, uh, who uh-huh. are pastors at Harvest. One of them, after we reported it, he said, hey, we, we actually, I gave that back when I realized the church had paid for it. But most of them, I'm guessing, are still riding those Harleys, and they were yeah, bought that's with wild. church donations. It's wild, and it's I could see how those kind of things trickle in, and until somebody I think is willing to say, "Hey, this collectively looks like a whole bunch of extra stuff that isn't supposed to come with the title of pastor or preacher," like I am fully in the camp that the job of a pastor is very tough and mm-hmm. it's very demanding and there's yeah. a lot of irrational standards put on people that are just unspoken and, and you get an email after you preach on Sunday from some angry person that doesn't even know you like it's a hard job and they probably don't get paid enough the average small town pastor doesn't get paid enough but the mega church thing that is well beyond the scope of being rational or realistic to say we have so much money that we're going to have a fund to give out $30,000 motorcycles to pastors that come speak. That's pretty heinous to me. Well, and here's the thing. There are places where it doesn't raise an eyebrow. And this was happening openly, you know, at Harvest for a long time. And recently, you know, you may have seen a couple months ago, I reported on John MacArthur, who is very, very well known, very well Mm -hmm. loved, you know, in certain evangelical circles. But on his wealthy lifestyle and three salaries he's taking from his three Mm -hmm. ministries and his three homes and, um, you know, millions of dollars going to his son-in-law through, then this is donation money. This is from the ministries. The verse I keep hearing back from critics or from people who are saying, that's okay, is 1 Timothy 5.17, where it says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preached and teaching. So what do you say to that? Is this double honor that these pastors deserve? Do they deserve to be rich if they're pastors of a mega church and they've done so much good for the gospel? I don't know, because then in 1 Timothy 6, it talks about godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We Mm -hmm. can take nothing out of it. But Mm -hmm. if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Mm -hmm. It's like plenty of verses can serve our uh, agenda, but it seems like God very consistently warns about the allure of riches. And I have to repent of this all the time because I would love to make more money. But it seems like it would be counter for God's highest chosen leaders to be dipping their toe into also pursuing riches. Like it seems at at a minimum, that's a risky game to play. At a maximum, you're turning God into a a vending machine where you're saying, hey, because of the work that I'm doing, God's going to richly bless me every single time. Like, well, if your theology is based on that, that's a pretty American only focused theology. And then you have to contend with the billions of other people, the pastors in Africa that are doing the same work that will never have that. Mm. To me, it's kind of intellectually lazy, I think, to say, hey, this one verse said God's chosen should get double honor. Like, well, define honor. Is honor a motorcycle or is honor uh, actual honor. Like it's, uh, there's, uh, there's all these mental gymnastics that we can do. And also like, I'm not a legalist. I don't want to be the type of person that can prescribe dollar amount or a possession amount that a pastor can have. But I also want to be able to ask the questions about like the system as a whole that can create real meaningful wealth via operating a church. It seems insane to me. And our churches look more and more just like for-profit corporations. I mean, we talked about Dallas earlier. There's multiple churches here that take in over a hundred million in revenue a year. Hmm. Just the the size and scope of that is mind blowing. And there's no controls. 
there's no there's controls. no reporting there's, there's no nothing. reporting and and this is something where i mean we have taken the separation of church and state and wanting our independence which i, I get that we don't want the, the state involved i don't think anybody our founding fathers when they were putting together this incredible experiment called america i don't mm-hmm. think they were ever envisioning the church as being this you know as you say 100 million dollar corporation with no controls whatsoever. None. Yeah. It's yeah. shocking. And, you know, you want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt that everyone's doing everything above board. But I mean, how many experiences or news stories do we have to hear about people mismanaging funds, uh, abusing people in church context for us to be like, hey, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't accept how we do mega churches as the status quo, because right now, it sure does set people up to have really big falls. Same with like creating celebrities out of these guys. It puts so much at risk that it's, I almost feel gaslit at times where people along with me aren't looking around being like, are we crazy for continuing to just do this the same way we've done for the past 20 or 30 years? It It has to change. It has to change. But again, like I'm not a self-help guru. I mean, if you want that, you can go buy T.D. Jakes' books or something. But I want to be the type of person that asks questions that everyone clearly is trying to avoid because- Mm. There's a few people that really benefit from this whole model. And there's a lot of people that are searching for God or searching for help that uh, in a lot of ways aren't getting it in exchange for these guys profiting significantly. Hmm. I just want Christians that want to further the actual gospel of Jesus to reevaluate and say, what can we do to get back to what we know to be true, that Jesus died for us, that we are called to make disciples and get rid of all this extra stuff like the conferences and the music licensing and the multiple profit centers. I mean, it's just a lot of stuff to care about. That's a distraction. Yeah, I know. We have uh, recently been attending a church. It's not our usual church because I often forget to sign up in time because you have to sign up online now with COVID and everything. They only let so many people in. So we've been visiting this one church and they have a traditional service with hymns. And I'm like, Oh, this is so great because I get triggered now by seeing CCLI licensing because I know how the money goes. And I just just can't even like, it's like, no, I just, I just want to sing the hymns. Nobody's making a killing off of this. Yeah. I had no idea about CCLI stuff until I started researching for the book. And that's, it's crazy. I tried to dig and try to find some like more statistics about it. And it's pretty hush hush because it's none of it's reported, but there are guys, I mean, the Chris Tomlins of the world that are making bazillions off of CCLI income. Yeah. There again, in a vacuum, it's not, I don't think it's good or bad, but it very easily can become turning church into a marketplace, which feels incorrect to me. Yeah. And and I know some guys, that's how they're making a living. You know, that's where it gets a little bit complicated. But I want to turn to, because yeah, yeah. you kind of touched on this, and I want to make sure that we explore it a little bit, but is sure. prosperity gospel. I, there are guys, like I mentioned, John MacArthur, not a prosperity gospel guy, but I would mm. argue some of his lifestyle doesn't really, in fact, he he is doing better than a lot of prosperity gospel preachers are. When it comes right down to lifestyle, I'm not sure there's that big of a difference. When it comes down to mm. theology, though, there is a big difference. And there is, I think, well, for example, Victoria Osteen, you quote her in your in your book, uh, a tweet yeah. that she had when she says, when we live a life of giving, not only are we bl- are we a blessing to others, but we are setting up blessings for our own lives. When you give, it will always come back to you, which I would agree. Always. I would I would say there's always blessing. 
it's just not always right, right, financial right. blessing, right? Right. You got to define blessing a little bit. Yeah. We know the type of blessing they're talking about. I mean, it's very clear. The prosperity thing is the one thing that I've cared about before all this preachers and sneakers stuff. Like a lot of this conversation developed organically based on how passionate so many different people were about this. And I realized that there were a lot deeper issues here. The prosperity gospel thing is something that very clearly to me seems like an evil misrepresentation of what Jesus came to do. And it is manipulating and taking advantage of people in their, in their weakest moments Hmm. and in turn getting people extremely wealthy with no recourse. And that is one of the few issues that I, that I do not care about hurting people's feelings about because it is so, it's just vile to me where it's basically saying, Hey, God does transact with you little human just by, if you donate to me specifically a hundred dollar seed, this one obscure old Testament verse says you'll get a hundred fold return or you'll have, you know, silos full of grain or whatever the the proverb says. And the only people that are really benefiting that are the guys that are saying the message. Let's say the transaction does exist like that. Logically, you would think that there would be churches, these specific churches filled with healthy and wealthy people. Yet there's no data to support that any church is filled with a bunch of healthy and wealthy people. There's a couple wealthy people. But to say that God always wants you to be financially and healthily blessed. I just see no support for it, no real support for it. Well, and it seems to be confusing too, uh, an economy that there was in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant and the New Testament where we're told to embrace suffering and we're looking towards heavenly rewards. And, That's right. you know, there's not that direct. I mean, in, in the Old Testament, it's very clear. The Israelites, they obey God, everything goes well. They disobey God, everything goes poorly. <laughs> right. Yeah, right? Okay, and yeah, just, yeah. And you sit there and you read it and you're like, how stupid can you be? Just obey God. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. But it's different in the New Testament. And we're told to embrace suffering. And, and we know that we will embrace suffering. Jesus said, if, if we don't deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him, we're not worthy of him. So That's I, right. how, how that can be put together, that God wants you rich and will always prosper you. And when that's not what we see, we see all the disciples, for example, um, yeah. except for one, I think, who didn't die a natural death, who were tortured, you know, and, and killed. And uh, the early Christians were they died. They were martyrs. So it, it's just yeah. bizarre to me how this has grown up and, and become popular, um, not just in America, but we are, we're exporting it all around the world, which makes it even more grotesque when you think of this kind of preaching in Africa or uh, underdeveloped countries where right. it's just, it, yeah, it's just so sad. Let's talk a minute about Christian celebrity too, which we touched on. I, you know, you just said a little bit about it, but I love sure. that you quoted Marshall McLuhan in your book, who said that the medium is the message. And today, our medium, if we take a look in these mega churches, is a slick production with lights and a fog machine, a rock band, and then this celebrity preacher who gets up there and, you know, in many cases, it's not anything more than a motivational speaker. Mm-hmm. So let's, you know, well, what, what does that do to the Christian message to have a medium like that? Yeah, yeah. And you see stuff kind of like the most recent ones are with Carl Lentz and Ravi Zacharias, where Mm -hmm. you build these larger than life characters that seemingly can do no wrong. And even though deep down, we know that everyone is a flawed human and it's going to screw something up eventually. 
we prop people up as essentially celebrities and we care more about their goings on. We care more about their social profiles. We care more about their preaching. They get a huge following and then get in a position where there's basically no oversight or accountability. I mean, you see a lot of these kind of modern Pentecostal churches. It's led by one pastor couple. And in turn, they become the brand, the celebrity, the reason people go to these churches. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens when that person cheats on their wife or that person embezzles funds or comes, I mean, ends up having years and years of abuse of the staff? Well, now your church literally erodes and your ministry erodes to the people that put some type of trust or faith into what you were saying. So to me, it's an indictment on all of us, really. It's not just the guys or girls that are at the top living the life off of it. It's kind of an indictment on us Christians because we created the demand for it. We said, this is the type of person we want. And in turn, it puts the legitimate gospel, at least at risk of looking like a clown show or something, because this stuff keeps happening. And then non-believers can say, well, why would I ever? You guys are no different. I mean, the reality is we are no different, but we have a different hope. But if you continue to put your church on such a large scale publicity strategy, then when you do something that screws it up, everybody knows about it. And in turn, it makes it so much worse for all of us. Hmm. These pastors, I, I'm thinking of Hillsong right now, who, you know, they're like, yeah, they oh, my God, rough go of it. <laughs> they are dropping like flies. And these pictures that they're like earlier, you know, when, when Carl Lentz, when this all came out, and I have to admit, I didn't really follow Carl Lentz. I was like, wait, Carl Lentz, who, you know, and, and so then mm. I, I began seeing the pictures that he had, he had been posting, uh, you know, of himself shirtless and his pants half falling off. And I'm just like, oh, my <laughs> word. I mean, did nobody, did nobody show any concern about this? And then we have this pastor, Hillsong pastor, just this week who resigned because mm-hmm. of these, um, you know, shirtless pictures, very revealing photo that, that he yeah. had on his Instagram story or whatever. I mean, it's very clear from now I've done a bunch of interviews and I've, I've gotten to know that Hillsong culture that, that everything, you know, cool and hip and celebrity was really what was put forward and it, it gained a lot of followers. But the problem is that's what we want. We want cool. I mean, yeah. I remember being in youth ministry many, many moons ago with my husband And I remember people saying to us, (laughs) I would hear this all the time, we just have to show the kids that Christianity can be cool. And I would look at them and and I'd say, Christianity's never been cool. It's (laughs) never been cool. In fact, to me, that's one of the most dangerous messages we can give them. Christianity is countercultural. And Jesus told us that people are going to hate us. So if, if you're coming to this because you think it's cool, you're in a lot of trouble because you're going to find out pretty soon it's not cool and the world doesn't like it. And if you're going to be true to Christ, your life is not going to be easy because people are going to hate you because of it. And we've lost that. I get why it happened because millennials plus a lot of us have rejected our parents and grandparents' faith traditions. And so, of course, we were seeking something more hip or entertaining or comfortable or, or more our style. But in turn, that turns it into a self-help motivation type deal. And if you never ask people, like in order to attract young people that have already said, ah, screw church, like I'm, I'm done with whatever my parents or grandparents were doing, to attract them, you have to appear cooler or have elements that your parents and grandparents' churches didn't have. And so it's just a different form of the attractional model. And when you get people in, but never call them to anything that's challenging or repentance or anything that actually defines the life of a Christian, then it just ends up being wishy-washy and you're there for entertainment. You're there to hang out with people and to be beautiful with each other. 
it waters everything down and it's it's a dangerous game to play i think now granted like i'm not a theologian i've got no seminary training or anything i call this how i see it i see it as i would love for christianity to be cool but every attempt at it has ended up having some type of negative byproduct or it's confused the actual gospel and and caused people to think they are going to heaven or believe a thing that when in fact they don't have any basis for that thing that they believe so like I would love for us not to be called to a life of suffering and be guaranteed riches and comfort and everything. Uh, I, th- I think that's probably some form of that is coming in heaven, but to live your reward on earth is your only reward. And so uh, that's not a game I'm trying to play. Well, and I think we have to remember that whatever we attract people with, we attract them to. And so if we're attracting mm-hmm. them with the show and we're, I remember being at this church and, um, I was on the worship team. They they literally made us color coordinate and which totally chafed <laughs> against me. I was like, what the heck? I've got to wear like black and red today or what? I mean, Come I was on. just like, this is so hokey. I couldn't. Like for what? Yeah. I couldn't stand it. And then it, honestly, the, the final straw for me was when we literally as leaders in the church, we were told we had to attend what to me was literally a dog and pony show. It was like they were doing a carnival after church and we're inviting everybody to it and nothing to do with Jesus. It was just carnival. And, and again, you know, hearkening back to when we were youth ministers, we used to say, Hey, you know what? We're not going to six flags, great America. You know what? We're not going to try to entertain you better than the world because they're better at it than we, we are. But if if you want to, if you want a relationship with Jesus, you want to like get together and pray and study the word. If you want to grow and you really want to know God, then come here. That's what we do. We do that better than the world. But if you want entertainment, go there. You even talk about the slick productions. You know, at what point does it go from being about a, a slick production and, and just go over into vanity and appealing uh-huh. to our vanity? It's hard to say specifically when it does. But if you look at modern church at a macro level, it does seem like we spend a whole lot of time and money on making a two hour service on Sunday that reaches a few thousand people when we have the resources to affect so much more. Just if you drill down the dollar signs that go into most megachurches, the guitars, the sound system, the mm. air conditioning, the building, the coffee shop, all that every single week, that's really expensive. And my question is just like, hey, is there a way to do it better? Or can we realign our priorities where it's saying, hey, what if we funneled 90% of all this operating budget into missions, community outreach, and evangelism instead of the majority of it going to Sunday service. Like I, again, like I've never run a church. I, I know there's probably plenty of nuance into running a church that, that makes it to where maybe some of these things make more sense, but I love comfort. I love the uh, air conditioning. I would, I love, you know, there's some element of you want to be able to perform so it's not distracting. And so it leads people in a way that isn't awkward or hokey, but there's an element of living in your gifts and doing things excellent as a collective. It seems like we care a whole lot about putting on a really slick, entertaining church service versus affecting change in the actual world. Well, let's get to where this gets personal. Really, at the end of your book, you start talking about, okay, what does this mean for us? How can we evaluate if we're handling our money right, our lifestyle? Because, I mean, obviously, if we're going to be critical of the guy on stage or of the church and say there's something wrong, you know, what are we doing differently in our own life? And how can we evaluate that? So talk about that. I mean, what can we do to make sure that we're really in tune with what God wants us to be and to do and to live 
as Christians in this culture that obviously is just rampant with materialism. Sure. The whole point of the book for me and what I want people to get out of it is hopefully a push to live in a way that is more real about your current situation, both online in person and also how we represent Jesus to the outside world. Because a lot of this stuff makes Jesus out to be something that he was not this kind of pseudo cool, you know, wants to make you rich and also kind of comfortable. And he'll also get you that job promotion while also saving you for all eternity. But God's churches are comprised of humans. It's all humans. And so we are all part of this, if you believe in God and you believe in Jesus. And so some of the tangible things are, is at least audit how you're presenting yourself to the people around you and and to the outside world. So much of this started on social media. All of us are obsessed with social media, or a lot of us are obsessed with social media. I think it's well documented that social media causes anxiety and depression in other people, Hmm. yet we'll still post whatever we want to post about our vacations, nice new purchase or a nice meal that we're at. And I want people to start considering the heart behind why they post what they post. At least give it a second to think. Like if you're on vacation, does it serve people more to show them that you're on this amazing vacation? Or does it serve them more to say, hey, let me enjoy the moment now and not show the world everything so that they can compare their life to mine and maybe even hate themselves more because of it? Uh, I think that's something that everybody can do. That's something that I've had to do consistently because I want people to think I'm cool. I've wanted people to think that I've got some like unique lifestyle, especially having a buddy in the NBA. Like he's given us so many great experiences that I wanted to basically flex on other people and say, look how cool my NBA aligned lifestyle is. So that's one thing is to consider what you post and the heart behind why you post. And then also, you know, we expect a lot out of pastors and preachers, especially online. It's very easily easy to comment and say, you know, so-and-so should have sold those shoes and given to the poor. And if that's the case, I think there's a way to comment on public figures about public things that they've chosen to put out in the world. But also, I want people to examine for themselves how they're saving and spending and giving their money because we are not off the hook to do whatever we want with whatever we want as believers you know, we're also called to sacrifice some things. I'm sure the stat still is that most people that go to church don't give anything. I think 2% is like the average. Yeah, yeah, right. So I'm sure that's pretty consistent. And I want to call people to reevaluate their budgets and reevaluate who they give money to and how much they give to the point like, hey, can we push to give a little more sacrificially to where it hurts? Like the 10% thing is a tired pharisaical, I don't know the, what the Pharisees did. Yeah, pharisaical, <laughs> 10%. After that, I can do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. I, I think Jesus calls us to more than that, to basically to be more sacrificial than that. So it's very heady to go from sneakers to sacrificial giving. But the two things that I want for people is to evaluate their hearts behind how they present themselves to be real. Like if your life is hard and you're going through it and you can't make ends meet, I want people to be real about that, not put on some mask or fake persona online or around the people that they know. And then also to, if they want others to be about it, I want them to be about it as well. And this is an indictment on me too. Like I could always give more. I could always reach out to people more and die to myself a little more instead of elevating my own brand or building myself up. And so that's what I want for people from the book. Let me just last question for you. But you're actually, I mean, kind of ironically, and people have said the same thing to me. It's like, 
okay, you're taking aim at these celebrity preachers. Are you becoming a celebrity investigative journalist? I don't even know if such a thing. Is that even a thing? Um, there's a lot of perks to that, huh? <laughs> oh, there's so many. <laughs> a lot of red carpets to be rolled out for you. Yeah, and, and I'm making so much money. If, if you want to yeah, yeah, see, same. go to my donate page. I've got, I've got a complete rundown of everything, what I take, what we spend money on. And I think that's just hugely oh, important. That. Well, you know what? Ever since I started taking people's money, it feels different to me. And so mm. I feel like they deserve to know exactly what's happening because this is the thing. I, I think you have to be transparent. And every time I yeah, yeah. spend a donor's a dollar, I think to myself, how would I feel if this is publicized, if this is published mm. to everybody? And that's like a check for me. It's like, ooh, I'm not sure they'd understand me spending that. Okay, I'm yeah. just not going to do it. So, I mean, that I think is- that's wisdom. I don't think that's fear either. I think there's a, there's a distinction between the two. Like you don't want to live in fear of, of people's opinions, but also I think there's wisdom in that living off the donations of others is a different calling than living off of money that you've made in exchange for a service or a product, I think. Oh, it absolutely is. And, and I think we need to understand that distinction. I mean, spiritually, there's always going to be an issue of how we handle our money, no matter how we got it, but especially, sure. and I think legally, if you, if you have donors dollars, you have to take into account donor intent. And so that's a big mm. deal. But let me just pose that to you because you're becoming, I mean, now you've, you've published a book and like you said, mm. you, you've been kind of on the, the circuit where you're, you're getting on some of these major media outlets and they're starting to pay attention to you. People know Ben, Kirby's name now, whereas they didn't yeah. before, you know, I yeah. mean, how are you dealing with having a platform and with, I'm guessing you're starting to get an income for this that you never really thought you would have. So how do you deal with it? I'm not overly eager for publicity. I think if you've followed my account for long, I mean, I was anonymous for two straight years and didn't really take any credit personally mm. for this for two years. And so people won't believe this, but I really did not want this to be about me because it, it would look real tacky if I kind of had this viral thing and then say, yeah, this is me. Come to my conference or come watch me speak. That would clearly look like a money grab or something. Mm. And I was very aware and did not want to do that. And that seemed disingenuous to me. Mm. And I tried to do this as slow as possible so that I could do this in as wise a way as possible. Mm. The book made it to where it felt like I couldn't continue in the conversation effectively without being out in public where people could see who I am and people could see what I'm about so that I could do things like this and have a podcast or go on TV or whatever and talk about it. I'm the type of person that likes attention. I like to make people laugh. It gives me a rush to speak on podcasts or in the media. And so that's something that I've got to constantly fight against. I have a community of people that know me well enough and are bold enough to tell me when I need to be in check and not make it about me and not elevate me. As far as the income goes, you know, we'll see if this book sells at all. I mean, I'm not really making an income on the book yet. I mean, I'll just say two years, I've struggled with the insecurities of making any money at all on it. Mm -hmm. Now, I think there's a very specific nuance between an idiot on Instagram that posts pictures versus a leader of a six, seven, eight figure corporation with a whole staff using his outsized influence for his own personal gain. But I get why people would point to the say like, hey, wait, don't you make money? And I'll continue to say that I've never vilified or critiqued anyone for making money, period. Like I've got my MBA, like I, I see the value in making a profit. I see the value in commerce. But doing that via God's church seems different. I think I've made maybe what the what a manager at Chick-fil-A makes over the life of this <laughs> uh, over the life of this account pre-tax. So I'm definitely not rolling in it either. I would love to be maybe. I'm also okay with being asked that question because I want people, I don't want to be the type of person that shies away from somebody that, that asks questions like that. Sure. Like if you're, 
it's very easy to tell if someone's being a jerk about it. I usually don't have time for that. But if somebody genuinely is like, hey, it seems like you're a hypocrite in much less words, I'm happy to engage with that because I want people to wrestle with some of those things. Because if you think I'm a hypocrite, then I hope that you would ask questions of your faith leaders as well. And I'm not saying your faith leaders are, are a hypocrite, but if you think that a guy may be saying or implying one thing and making money off of it at the same time is an issue, I hope you would ask about that uh, within your church as well. Well, and you're not taking donations. You're not a nonprofit. Correct. So. Right, exactly. I I uh, have done the whole thing without uh, asking for a single tithe. And I'm sure you've devoted many hours to what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. My wife is uh, still, you know, ready for me to be move on to something else. I'm sure. Well, Ben, I just really appreciate you taking the time and talking with me. And I appreciate what you've done. I mean, creative, but I do think it was Holy Spirit inspired for you yeah. to, you know, develop this platform. And um, I just trust and pray that you'll be submitting it to God for his glory and um, and we'll continue to do what you're doing. It's it's fantastic. So thank you. For sure. Thank you, Julie. I mean, again, uh, you're a great follow on Twitter and I'm very honored to talk with you finally because you are uh, you do very important work as well. So uh, thank you for giving me uh, the opportunity to talk. Oh, well, thank you. And thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. Again, if you'd like to find me online, just go to Julie Roy's, spelled R-O-Y-S dot com. Also, please subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word about the podcast by leaving a review. And then if you'd share the podcast on social media, we would appreciate that as well. Again, thanks so much for joining me today. Hope you have a great day and God bless.